Cradeline Network. the 45th episode of Big Neg One, 45 years of Big Neg One. My name is Conrad, alongside my friend Eli, and this is the podcast where two Americans patrol their way through the Judge Dredd magazine, covering the Judge Dredd magazine for September and October 1990. That's volume two, issues 63 and 64. This episode, Wilderlands Kickoff, we'll head back across the pond with Armitage and Calhab Justice. And go west with Missionary Man as we go to therapy with Mean Machine. (laughs) If you want to read along with us, you'll find the comics we're covering today in Judge Dredd, The Complete Case, Files 21, and the Mean Machine, Real Mean Collection. How are you doing this time, Eli? Great. I'm excited to get back into some of these classics. Yeah. No, you know, we're definitely with this. um, This will come a little bit more sort of in the non-story part, but... With the release of this uh, Wilderlands crossover, they're definitely uh, thinking that they'll have, um, like, that folks will be coming in that haven't been reading the comic for a little while and stuff like that. And so, you know, they're definitely trying to put their their best foot forward with familiar stories and, like, fun ones as well. Like, and so let's get, and speaking of Wilderlands, let's get to the Wilder Zone. And do Thrill One, Judge Dredd. Uh, script robot John Wagner, art robot Carlos Sascara, and, and Trevor Harrison. Lettering robot Tom Frame. Wilderlands Part One. We're in the Wilder Zone. Where am I? When am I? In the Wilder right. Zone. said. The Wilder Zone. Talk about Wilderlands, this dread mega epic. Eli Fox and Conrad, Team EFC, the Everton <laughs> Football Club, coming at you. Is that a is that a I'm British right. joke? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a football Sorry, it's a Eli, football, I was speaking over you. Yeah. I'm just glad that I'm number one. It's EFC. Yeah? It's freaking, I mean. Ooh, that's right. That's true. Be, well, you know, I remember there being some dissatisfaction with me calling us Team Feck last time. The whole oh. way through. So I'm mixing it up. Don't remember that. That never happened. <laughs> so we once more find ourselves in the world of comics crossovers you know, even more wild here in 1994 than they were in 1992 our, for our last one with Judgment Day. With 2000 AD and just magazine sort of in trouble, this was a chance to juice sales for both comics to get people to buy, you know, buy both of them instead of just one. Although with the previous crossover, there was a lot of criticism actually of, you know, of just that basically. Like, oh, like you can't follow the story unless you buy both of them and I'm not made of pounds and pence or whatever. So... <laughs> Um, in theory, you should be able to understand the story, even if you're only reading the, uh, the prog or the Meg parts of the story. That's something to kind of keep an eye out for as we're reading. Oh, cause they do like a recap or something or just, yeah. Or like something we'll see a lot, especially in these early sections, or I, I guess in part one and two is you'll see sort of t- the, the same conversation from different angles, for instance, like in like the magazine sections are a lot more focused on judge Castillo. Um, and so she'll sometimes, sometimes you'll see the same conversation she has with like dread say from her perspective, but in, in the magazine or, and in the progs, you'll see the same conversation from dreads perspective. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. I think it's an interesting way of handling it for sure. Well, I, I definitely think that it's, you know, 
it's taking into consideration the fact that most of your readership are children as opposed to say, I don't know, people with a bunch of money to spend. I mean, at this point, I think they're getting more towards being sort of like teens and folks in their early 20s for the record. Like it's not the it's not the six to 12 year olds that it was in the day or actually more like it is those same six to 12 year olds as it was back in the day. But it's also like 17 years later. you know? Right. Sure. A lot of the topics don't seem to be of a childlike nature. They seem pretty mature. So I was. Yeah. I'm surprised I mean, to, to think that. Yeah, I, I mean, especially in the magazine, it's it's definitely focused more on the on the young adult reader, and I think the Prague is older crew than it was one at one point. Well, it is the '90s. We got to be got to be uh, pointing ourselves at the Utes, the oh, new Utes. '90s. That's what I say. So last time I asked y'all um, about co- comics crossovers you liked back in the world, back in the uh, in the Judgment Zone. This time, I want to know about your best extreme travel story. You ever been in a hairy plane flight or something? Let me know. Eli, uh, any uh, extreme travel tales? Oh, I was trying to figure out a way to make a joke about being on a flight with a guy named Harry. but <laughs> You were going to the high rock. Right, exactly. Um, uh, I do remember, um, I, I don't get out of my house a lot by choice. I, I like being in my house. But um, I do go to gigs sometimes. The only thing that comes to mind is... Um, uh, um, uh, time I went uh, to a different state to do caricatures. I was driving down this long freeway. And I got uh, pulled over by a cop for speeding, mostly because you ever been on an open road and there's just a lot of it, and you're yeah, like, and there's no one's on it, so you're just like, I should just exceed the speed limit real quick. Yeah, you drive fast because it's awesome. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, but anyway, cop pulled over, uh, pulled me over. Um, in this particular case, I was driving a car that. Um, it didn't have its insurance. I had the insurance, didn't have documentation of it. Um, was in someone else's name because I had just recently got it from them and paperwork hadn't come in yet. The speedometer Holy fuck. because it was a, uh, uh, well, it just, none of its gauges work. Like, um, <laughs> I can't tell how much gas is in it until the uh, check it, until the gas light comes on. And then I'm like, oh, okay, we're out of gas now. I better fill it up. Um, Are you fear and loathing in Las Vegas, the book? <laughs> uh, I'm not. Um, but it was, uh, but yeah, I was pretty sure. Uh, just me being uh, African American, oh. cops well. So I was like, "Oh no, I'm gonna die. This is it." Uh, uh, I mean, that. honestly, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, the, America, baby. I, I told the guy all the stuff, and he was like, "Hey, you know what? Just be careful. There's coyotes on this road. Um, coyotes, so like they, like they'd attack your speeding vehicle." No, he was like, just um, people freak out. The coyotes come out, and then you 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 freak out, and then now you you're dead. Coyotes dead. Like, God damn it! I was hoping for like a like a uh, what is it like uh, evil evil coyotes and race cars like trying to get you cars. Right? No, not this time. That's that's another story. Um, that's awesome. But, and he gave me just gave me some tips. He's like, hey, take a photograph of your insurance. That way, you can just show it to people, and it's all fine. And he just let me off with a warning. He just, I, I just thought it was very sweet. Um, but Not a shit cop in right. the middle of nowhere. I think it was, I always felt like it was one of those things where it's a small neighborhood. So he just doesn't care about like my, like, oh, some, some guys visiting here, like giving him a ticket isn't like, it's fine. He, I'm never going to see this person again. But I feel like if he was like, oh, you're old man, Jane, you know, I know you. Hey, you whippersnapper. Like he would have been. A little bit more like uh, judgmental, but he was like, mm-hmm. "Oh, the guy who just isn't around 
isn't used to this area who's never going to come back. Yeah. Hey, watch out. Drive better. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And that's weirdly enough, the purpose of cops. Like, hey, listen, man, like just drive a little better as opposed to anything else. Right. Sometimes cops are robots, and right. I, those are the law. The I, I'll be honest, RoboCop is literally the worst kind of cop. Right. Yeah, that's what Dread thinks too. Fox, any? Uh, oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, Eli. Yeah, I said, yeah, it's a uh, mechanismo. I think was that you, you exactly. That's trying to do some extra work, getting that extra credit. <laughs> yeah, Fox. Any uh, big travel stories in your past? Uh, most of my weirder ones have okay. been. Uh, it, uh let's well we'll not worry about the cross state line stuff but we'll worry about like the uae right so while i was working for a particular company that was on a particular island Mm. uh one of the main places we had to fly through was the united arab emirates um and in order to hit a very particular flight i had to stay in a hotel in the airport which happily my company paid for um and that hotel they had people come at very particular hours to knock on your door oh excuse me sir it's time for prayer which was you know hey listen man i'm in a muslim country and i said uh hey what do you mean they're like oh well uh, listen there's a prayer rug right over here showed me everything i had to do and uh it was the first time i've uh ever prayed towards mecca in my life no. Um, pretty dope. I mean, not under the watchful eye of anybody. He just set it all up for me and was like, yeah, just in case you want to. And I'm like, well, you know, when in a police state, definitely pray towards Mecca. Right. I get it. Uh, not a good time to make waves. For sure. I, listen, I like I definitely didn't search porn in that in that uh, hotel room where I was definitely being surveilled. So yeah. wouldn't want that. Although. They wouldn't. <laughs> oh, right, right. It was a, it was an interesting, it was an interesting place. Uh, like I, I've never actually been outside, like of the airport. Uh, when you, when I landed at, um, I want to say it was around ten at night. It was around forty degrees Celsius, which is around like Jesus Christ, eighty or ninety or a hundred degrees. Yeah, that's like hundred degrees. Yeah, that's like hundred degrees. So it was very hot at night. <laughs> And mess. and and here I am wearing like you know clothes, and everyone else is like, yeah, we're just in like a robe because it's fucking hot. Right? Yeah. When in Rome, take your clothes I, off. It's that. it's one of the things that I really kind of like like clocked on is that if I ever have to kind of connect through the Emirates ever again in my life, which I think will be never, um, I don't I I like dress for comfort. It's a very uh, humid place. <laughs> hey, duly noted. You know, I uh, I tried to pray pray towards Mecca. That was a that was an interesting interesting attempt. Yeah, they actually have a how to on the on the uh, on the TV. It's like here's yeah. how you do it. If you want to do it, I want to know if you like became more spiritual. If you like Mecca, answered back. I I definitely didn't like experience Muhammad being like, bro, great one. Like you're in now. <laughs> <laughs> I I definitely was like, hey, I'm going to try this out in a country uh, that is a place that I've been, <laughs> hey, and for being open minded and just kind of, uh, you know, like like what's going to happen to me? 
Like yeah. as somebody who doesn't who doesn't have a chosen deity yet, you know, I'm not a cleric. Uh, you know Get those magic powers, buddy. Pick some. Domains. Well, that's the thing. Is like, hey, listen, it'd be very easy for me to choose a god if I got magic powers. It's no brainer. What uh, talking about no right. no atheists in D and D world. You know? Right. That's well, what I'm saying. Like, give me magic powers. That's the trick, though, because you get magic powers, and then you're a part of some sort of weird contract, and then the powers are used for, like, you got to do a bunch I, of stuff. That's like, what yeah. – so, see, that's the thing. Like, you're talking about a sorcerer, right? Like, a sorcerer is like, hey, I have an eight I have an eight powers granted to me by, like, a book okay. or okay, I don't maybe wanna, whatever. All we're I'm getting saying, too deep into D&D talk here. We got to get going. <laughs> All right. Wait, what are we talking about? The Wilderlands? That's right. That's right. My my travel story is that one time I was in a plane that um it was we had a bunch of crosswinds. They had to do like three or four attempted landings before oh my God. we actually landed. That's too uh, with like, uh, you know, going it. down, going back up, then like a big like, you know, having to turn the plane around to try to land again. So like a big 180 like, degree turn. Like you guys are like trying that. to land like you were yeah. physically feeling the landing happening and then they were like, nah, biffed it. Exactly. And so, I hate yeah. that. It's the it's the first time I actually saw so I um someone actually used a uh I saw someone use a, a barf bag for you know for barfing. Nice. Did you I hate this? I hate this so much. More spiritual in that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but it was Eli, one of those I love it. One of those one of those honestly far too frequent moments in the life of Conrad where in the moment I'm very spiritual. We'll make a lot of promises to God, but in the, af- in the aftermath, I'm less willing to follow through on them. I'm a, I'm a bad friend to God. You know, that's sort of how it goes. I'm afraid. <laughs> Eli, I love the follow through. I love this bit. That's right. Like, please, I'll go to church every day. I promise. <laughs> It's Get all right. done. All right, that was fine. I don't right. think we need to. I think we all know that <laughs> right. I was in a moment and we could Speaking just carry of on. Bad plane flights. Exactly. Exactly. Here we go. Wilderlands at last. So we, we're on the planet Hestia, and this is backstory that they covered pretty well in the magazine, but not that well in the prog. So I'm just going to drop it on you here, Fox, if that's all right with you. We're on the planet Hestia. It's the 10th planet, or I guess the ninth planet now, because they also didn't foresee pluto being delisted um <laughs> it was it's on notice yeah it's got an orbit perpendicular to earth's and was discovered in the year two in the distant future of 2009 Ooh. it's about halfway between earth and venus in its orbit and has a breathable atmosphere and fire-based wildlife including um a race of intelligent humanoids called the Nomen. so it's nibiru yeah, it's very much in that sort of Nibiru Planet X sort of situation. So it's a racist planet. No, because I feel like I feel like those connotations of the tenth planet hadn't like 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 there's no Q in nineteen ninety-four when this stuff's being written, you know? No, but there is like Chariot of the Gods. Oh yeah. Oh sure. But I mean I mean the that, that ancient alien stuff's in the in the magazines going on in uh in on Mars too, where the, That's the face true. of the face of Mars is an actual face and was full of ancient alien um technologies and stuff. Yeah, Egyptians couldn't have done this all by themselves. It had to have definitely been somebody else. Ooh. Obviously. Sorry, you, you were saying something, Eli? No, I was just saying, um no, they're not racist. We're the we're the racists. That's that's supposed to be the message. Oh, of course. <laughs> so, 
Anyway, um, <laughs> j- meanwhile, Judge Dredd has been arrested and is on and is being escorted to Titan by Chief Judge Magruder for interfering with the Mechanismo robot judge program thing. Um, yeah, Magruder's taking him, you know, there along with her aide Castillo, who's assisting her. They stopped by Hestia to try to sell robo judges to the locals, but no dice. Um, and last and uh, previously in the magazine, one of the mechanismos didn't try to help Magruder like during an assault, like when some some shark, some flying shark, sand shark things attacked him. And so now she's a little paranoid about the bots as well. This is all stuff sort of from the magazine. Um, so, like I said, this is a crossover between the magazines and the progs, which starts in prog 904, goes to 905, then we go to the magazine, then back to the progs, it's sort of two progish episodes, then one mag episode, and so forth like that. Dude, so I imagine John Wagner's kind of running the whole show. Yeah, he's writing through. this whole thing. Uh, is it is it all Carlos, or is it... Uh... No, uh, 2000 AD side is mostly Carlos, and mm-hmm. is mostly Carlos Escara, and I believe the magazine's all uh, Trevor Harrison's. A relatively new guy, but I think it's a, nice. some good dread work here. Yeah, I really like the art. He's got some good monster stuff going. Like <laughs> so, starting in Prog 904, Wagner, Scarra, and Frame. Oh, Firestorm rains down as the Justice 4 spaceship prepares to take off. We learned that, um, as well as various passengers and Dread and Magruder Castillo, they're also taking a, a native Hestian girl named Phoenix on the ship with them. We met Phoenix in the the ship flies off over the unexplored territory of the Wilderlands, doing some photo reconnaissance before the ship hits the atmosphere. Um, and there's sort of folks are looking out the windows, checking out natural geyser systems and giant dragons and stuff like that. I mean, I would too. You know, yeah. I'd be ogling all them dragon birds. Cool alien scenery and none of the heavy psychedelic stuff like in Firekind, but or at least not yet. Missed opportunity. Uh, well, it's, it, it's coming. <laughs> Magruder, oh, sorry, Eli? No, I just laughed. Yeah. Um, Magruder calls Castillo because she wants to talk to Dredd now. Castillo gets Dredd from his cell and they head over, passing some new prisoners. There's a mutant labor gang that they're taken back to Earth to be jailed. In her cabin, Magruder is ordering the robots um, checked for faults. And when Dredd arrives... Magruder offers him a pardon if he agrees to swear loyalty to her, but Dredd's not very impressed by all this. He says he won't wear that badge until, or he he won't wear the badge again until Magruder is out of office. I mean, pretty fair, given the the robot boys that she keeps making. Doesn't like those robots. The ship flies over a lava flow as it prepares to enter orbit, when suddenly a mysterious gun appears and kills the ship's pilot. Guns (laughs) Got evidence, right? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like I like the idea of like there potentially just being a, a pilot gun somewhere like we're hanging out in the back, you know, it's the future. Yeah, it's yeah. like the it sword is. of Damocles, but it's a gun pointed at, at a ship pilot. Oh, oh my God. Prog 904, the co-pilot is shot as well, sending the Justice 4 crashing down. It lands in the lava flow with a spladoomph. And the ship submerges, but then pops back up like a cork, for now at least. But in the crash, Magruder falls and lands right on her neck, which is bad times. The ship floats in the lava, but there's a hole in the bottom and lava spray. Yeah, and lava starts spraying inside the ship. Dredd springs into action, grabbing Magruder and telling Castillo to see to the passengers. 
He carries the chief to an escape port using a fire axe to open the door when the handle's red hot to the touch. One Good. of the things I'll say about like this whole like because we're we're almost we're going through almost like four to six pages at this point mm-hmm. is that there's very minimal amounts of like uh, text, right? Yeah, no, this is very it's like, all just yeah. action. Yeah, they're really trying to get across like that. This is a real crisis situation, and so dread sort of moving almost by by instinct. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Judge Kinsley tries to stop Dredd, but there's no time. Dredd, Magruder, and Kinsey all escape, but Dredd goes back in to get more survivors. This takes us into the magazine with Trevor Harrison on art. Um, As we're seeing in the mag, also these sections are all narrated by Castillo's journal, and we flash back slightly as the ship enters a dive into the lava. Uh, Yeah, I can kind of see what you mean. It's where it's... There's a little bit of narration to kind of let you know what's going on. Yeah. In previous installments, when we were sort of going around Hestia, uh, Castillo's journal was also sort of a framing device. And you can kind of see how, again, how these timelines sort of overlap, you know, so we're sort of flashing back a little bit to before the crash, be- be- before the start of the crash here in the Meg. Right. Yeah. So the ship goes into the lava. People, people are tossed around the ship. As we see Dredd uh, telling Castillo to see to the passengers from her perspective, this is one of those crossover points. She gets a hysterical Judge Moynihan to get it together and rallies the civilians to evacuate the ship, including um, lifting debris off the leg of a Dr. Rendell from Britsit. We'll see later. The pass- with, with the passengers out, Dredd asks her to undo his cuffs. She does, and both she and Dredd realize that there's more prisoners aboard the ship. Dredd goes to get them as a woman falls off the gangplank and can't hold on So she, to people trying to save her. So she goes plunging into the lava below. I really like that uh, sequence because you see she has a because she did not. She bursts into flames on the way to the lava, which mm. you know, is how it should work, because the lava is so hot, <laughs> like, like just the air above it will burn you. So right. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> totally cool. Um. Sorry, uh, okay. A med tech is checking on Magruder. She's in a bad skull fracture, and there's no way for them to get medical attention. They're 2,000 Ks out from civilization, and there's no ship that could reach them, even if they knew where they were. This is something we also learned about Hestia, just that they've sort of got one central colony, but they don't really have a lot of resources to go deeper into the frontier, sort of around that one. They're trapped in the Wilderlands! It takes us back into the progs with Ascara as we see Dredd going through the ship, sending a surviving judge to safety. He surveys a dead engine engine room and the mechanismo control room where Dredd notes that both the engineers there had their necks broken. But both these mm. places are now filling up with lava. Yeah, yeah. Think about it. Um and also, it's the third time in as many comics that someone says the the, uh, the there must be a hole in the hull of the ship. They, they're hitting that note hard in this, in this section. It's Leviathan as hell. Yeah. He meets with Castillo and re-overlaps the magazine, then goes to help the prisoners. Um, he manually opens the cages and beats one of them up for um, to get the rest under control. They all run, and Dread leaps, just barely getting off the Justice 4 in time as it sinks into the lava. I love that he uses an axe into, like, molten cliff in order to pull himself up. Yeah, (laughs) presumably. Pretty pretty rad. Because of the lava, the the cliff's kind of gummy or something. It's a bit bit more malleable. I'll bite. Yeah, It's like like a big hunk of fudge or something like that, you know? (laughs) Weird. All right. 
A hunk, sur- a hunk of burning fudge. Finally. The survivors survey the scene and wonder what they'll do now. O'Hare, the medic, uh, confirms this dire strait that Judge Magruder's in, as Dredd confirms that no distress signal was sent when the ship went down. They're on their own. The judges wondered what, what happened with all this stuff. And um, while... And while one of them starts getting spooky about the curse of the planet, Dredd takes charge oh and starts assigning some roles. Like, let's start rationing food and medical supplies and, you know, you're the intelligence officer, that kind of stuff. But Judge Hine, the, oh, go ahead. the deluge of text ensues and someone decides that they're going to step to Judge Dredd yeah. and gets fucking clocked. Yeah, Judge Hine pulls rank because, hey, I'm senior judge here and you're just a prisoner, Dredd. But Dredd kind of puts him on the spot, like, well, what do you want to do then? And um, Hein is indecisive. So Dredd punches him in the face and takes his gun. Yeah, that's what you learn. That's the lesson right there. Yeah. All these judges are just button pushers, rejects, too weak for the streets. That's why they're, you know, doing diplomatic missions on a spaceship. (laughs) Dredd's the only one capable of leading in this situation. And it seems like the judges actually mostly agree with this. Like, they, they know they're... They, they they know they they suck, but they're also bound by the law. They can't like let dread be in charge extrajudicially. Um, un- a bunch of judges into yeah I'm in charge. Pow! He gets halfway there, and luckily Magruder comes out of her coma just long enough to put dread in charge as well, because she knows that like we got to get past the stumbling block. They've got to get out of the lava pit, but O'Hare warns that moving Magruder might kill her. But Dredd can't make exceptions, so on his head be it, he takes responsibilities. With him back in charge, Castillo gives him his gives Dredd his badge back. It's time to be a judge again. And the party heads out um, with uh, the convicts carrying Magruder on a stretcher. As we see Dredd deactivating the palm sensor on Hines' gun so he can use it as well. He uh, makes Castillo intelligence officer and worries to her that the ship must have been taken out by sabotage and the killer that, you know, took the ship out might still be among them. Sabotage! Uh, All right. (laughs) So back in the magazine, we're with Harrison again, and um, the Motley crew makes their way through the wilderness wilderness as we overlap with with Dredd's sabotage concerns. Only the lava flow, only the lava flow being shallow kept them alive. Dredd doesn't know why anyone would kill themselves for, you know, to like necessarily if you kill, if you, the, the way that if, if this was like an assassination attempt on Magruder, it would kill you as well. And Dredd isn't sure who would do that. Um, and we see sort of the crew stopping to take a break because they're wimps, not like cool right. judges, basically. Do. <laughs> Magruder's failing and, um, only those three freed convicts are happy to um, be stuck here in the wilderness. Even the judges are grumbling when suddenly a little a scream rings out. It's a little girl named Molina, and she's getting grabbed by tentacles. Oh, no. Oh, God, gross. Uh, a preteen? Come on, guys. They pull her underground through a hidden trap door into a tunnel system. Dreads hot in her heels, but arrives to find the lair of the creature that's full of bones and some kind of monster, this big, like, fleshy spider crab with tentacles biting into the girl's back. And honestly, it's pretty terrifying. I mean, turns out she's, or it, is into vor. Mm, yeah, literally. Dread tries to shoot the creature, but it shoots a corrosive spray at him instead tries to eat him instead (laughs) suddenly castillo arrives and distracts it 
Dredd grabs a jagged tooth off the ground and kills the monster with it. He gets medical attention. They tell him the acid burns will heal, but the girl won't. She's dead. Aww. Ah, her father. It's like a white wing dove. No. Uh, spiders <laughs> dissolve our insides. <laughs> oh. Ooh. 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 Ew. Ew. Exactly. Um, yeah, we learned that the spider, the uh, the or that this creature dissolved her from the inside out, turning her to jelly. O'Hare tends to dread as he chides the other judges for like not helping him, and they're all jerks I about mean, it. Honest to God, it's their job. And they're like, "Oh, dread! I thought you were in charge of this stuff, big survival dude. You know, you seem to have it all in hand." You know, it it's true. When I think of uh, this is the guy in charge, I think this is the person who is going to be doing the actions, not sitting back and and observing the actions. You're right. If there's one thing I hate more than judges, than, than just regular judges. It's lazy judges. Mm, preach. Yeah. I will say I really enjoyed the art from this section yeah. because I think this is from the magazine. Yeah, yeah. This, this is a, a, a Trevor Harrison here. Yeah, so Molly, Molly Witters it's, is dead. How many of the rest of the crew will join her? We'll find out next time on Wilderlands. Sum up this first section for six um, installments of Wilderlands here. What do you all think? So far, so good. I'm really liking it. Um, I like the setup that they have. Um, hey, let's go to an isolated planet. Um, make it so that Judge Dredd is uh, commit conduct a mutiny, and now he's in charge, and now everyone else is against him, but need him to live. It creates an interesting tension pretty quick that's very easy to understand. Um, so, yeah, I could see them doing some fun stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, naturally they put a mystery in there, too. Oh, who's this person killing? Is it is it the curse? Is it Mechanismo? Is it Dredd's evil plan? He does evil stuff. Mm, he thinks it's secondary the force, the right. Sino sit, something like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, and yeah, as, as a uh, Fox said, the uh, arts uh, banger. So it's freaking great. Uh, yeah, I I firmly agree. I like that it splits up. At least if, as we're kind of reading through it mm. continually, right? Like everyone and everyone should, you know, take a knee for Carlos. But I, like, I I love the new uh, and Conrad. Uh, can you give me the name of the? Yeah, yeah, the artist yeah. Again? Trevor Harrison. Trevor Harrison, kind of like it, bringing it into the modern era, right? Like I I think of of Carlos as a very particular time and era within the uh within the the genre let's say mm-hmm. um but not one that necessarily has like the crisp new look that i'm used to from like the 90s when i got into mm-hmm. comic books right mm-hmm. which this has and you know you're you're really thick uh kind of um black lines you know again it's it's your it's your uh comic book look right like everything is kind of outlined in in a nice black ink you've got your nice dark shadows but your characters are also a lot more detailed yeah. right yeah and so i i find it to be so much like i love going back and forth basically because it's kind of like the the original the feel the look and now like the new and the you know again a woman dropping into lava and before she gets into lava as you say eli burning to a crisp that that entire page Mm. like is split into four panels but those four panels are 
all from a uh, a fixed point right like yeah. and and it's diagonaled out and it feels dynamic while at the same time showing that kind of progression of her just setting on fire and dying right there's so much in this that i think is is worth looking at even though i think like ultimately it's just gonna turn into judge dread fighting some robots yeah. well that's what it always turns into but yeah i, <laughs> I, I totally agree with that um yeah it has um the legibility and um readability of it isn't compromised, which I think is, um, that's the thing you got to maintain. That's, you know, I'm all for amazing art, but I also am like, if I can't understand what the heck's going on, then you lose a lot there as well. But this one's kind of towing that line very well. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I just, it, it's so interesting, at least for, for me, cause I, I've talked about it a little bit with, with, with Conrad, but like looking at like, let's say Carlos Escara, he's very used to, um, squares and rectangles as here is how we show something. Whereas we're seeing with, with this fellow Trevor, it's like, it's a little bit more dynamic there. You know, you'll do a panel, you'll do a full page and then some pop out panels on top of that. Like it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit more modern. And I and I like that a lot more because it makes it feel a lot more kinetic, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, and I think it's an int- I think it's we're telling an interesting story just in this mega epic. I think so much of our pre our recent, I guess pretty much all the mega epics, or like there's been this sort of escalating in they've been escalating in terms of size and scale. You know, I mean the last one, of course, global zombie apocalypse, but other mega epics have been stuff like you know, the fate of the city in the far, you know, time traveling to the far future. Or, um, or like you know, the uh, Soviet invasion and the Apocalypse War, or something like that. I think it's interesting having this story, which, where it's much smaller, right, and much more. You know, it's a it's a road trip and a survival story. It's very different from, um, you know, and much in a much smaller story, even if it does involve Dread and and the Chief Judge and stuff. You know, like the there's less stakes, sort of, but still an interesting tale. It's a good canon. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're sort of yeah, lost in the wilderness. Like who will survive that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, you wanna you wanna save on budget so you're just in like the California Yeah, Island. yeah, we're just walking through Griff Griffith Park a bunch of times, stuff like that. Put a <laughs> put a gel on the screen. All right. Fantastic. Well, we'll be continuing on next episode with more of the Wilder Zone. Thanks for sticking out with us. Um team EFC. Let's continue on in our quest. See you then in the Wilder Zone. Story two, Missionary Man. Missionary Man, our second story. Uh, Script robot Gordon Rennie, art robot Simon Davis, letting robot Gordon Robson. We talked last episode about Carlos Escara using uh, computer coloring in his art process. And I think that uh, magazine editorials gotten similar software because you can see all of the credits pages, the start of each thrill now have some real like they they take an image from the comic and add a lot of like visual distortion to it and stuff mm, yeah which is normally pretty arty but for this missionary man it just makes it look like this guy's face is like covered in moss or like maggots or right. something like that it's not a great yeah. look <laughs> but so it goes um he was in the mega special but this is artist simon davis's first time in the magazine he'll do quite a bit of stuff in the coming years he's both a comics artist and a portrait artist and I think you can see sort of some of his like portrait art influence as we go through uh, missionary. Um, anyway, 
New Orleans, New Orleans, 21-16, the big sleazy, as they like to say. A man in a green and white yellow checked suit is getting beaten up by thugs who are demanding money. And they leave hit. And as they leave, a man in black with shining eyes and a pistol approaches. He demands that the green and yellow, named Gideon Good, tell him the tale of how he found the treasure of the Sierra murder. And that's the name of the story here as well. And it's a play on the title of the classic Western movie, uh, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, FYI. Under threat of the pistol, Good has no choice but to tell his story. And so things go black and white because it's flashback time. Good is a grifter and a hustler selling phony treasure maps to rubes all over the cursed earth. He was, you know, on the run from a previous town when he happened across a, the, a corpse being eaten by vultures that was sort of with its dying breath clutching a rolled up piece of paper. Good snagged the paper attached to the hand, of course, but quickly tossed away. And it was revealed to be a map, the famous treasure of Sierra murder, the great, lo- the greatest lost hoard of the pre-atomic wars loot in all the cursed earth. His scam artist sense tells him that the map is real, and so he heads off, leaving the corpse for the buzzards, as you do. But not long behind him is a man in black, his horse covered in chains, and he's coming after him. Later, Good's trying to sell his map to a bunch of deputies, but they've heard of his reputation, and instead of buying it, like, call call him a jerk and go to burn the map instead. Things go from bad to worse when shots ring out, but er- and everyone but good is killed by a mysterious figure, a gunslinger known as the Undertaker. Where I start making uh, pro wrestling reference, but I won't get. <laughs> He's after this map as well. Um, sadly, the one that just got burned. Luckily, Good says that he memorized it. So the Undertaker puts a noose around Good's neck. He makes him start walking to where they can find the treasure. But the narration, but in the narration box, Good admits. He doesn't have a clue where he's going. He barely looked at the map at all. (laughs) Meanwhile, the missionary man and Resurrection Joe are checking the site of the murders and find a little piece of the map. This tells them that there's a killer loose going after the treasure, so they mount up to go after it. So we sort of have a quick flashback within a flashback, Eli. Freak out. We learned that when the poor perished in the Atomic Wars, the rich rode them out in shelters, including one that also held a fortune in gold bullion. It's uh, the bullion in the comics marked as being for Fort Knox, but it's not. The shelter isn't actually in the actual Fort Knox where all the gold in the U.S. is kept because we went to Fort Knox in a previous story and it was inhabited by the, the last president of the United States and his medics that were also robot vampires. It was a whole whole thing, Eli. Oh, man. Yeah, it tracks me. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, underground nuke shelter, fortune and gold bullion, but gold drives men mad. And the legend is that everyone in that shelter killed them, killed each other, and now the treasure is still out there. The treasure of the Sierra murder. So now, good luck Gideon Good is expected to find it, but doesn't have a clue because he lost because the, the map got burned. Luckily... Fate seems to have other plans as suddenly the missionary man and Resurrection Joe finally show up in their own comic to confront the Undertaker. With a massive shot, Preacher Kane blows the Undertaker away, like sort of popping his rib cage out of his chest and everything. 
Good isn't out of the fire yet, though, because it seems now Kane wants him to find the treasure. Oh, geez. And he's back where he started now, stumping through the wilderness with a noose around his neck to tie him to Preacher Kane's horse. And they're looking for the treasure, too, I guess. But The Undertaker is made of stern stuff, just like as anyone who's watched pro wrestling can tell you, death won't stop him. You know, put him in a buried alive match or something he'll come back you know in a casket match he's right out of there um and indeed in this case he's alive again wringing the necks of the vultures that tried to feast on his body and he's coming after our boys you got to assume next time on missionary man the three amigos and i should say that the previous episodes next time was the searchers so you're doing various western movies in the title yeah that's fun uh yeah and i like uh i know that in comics, you the black and white for flashbacks because it's flashbacky. Yeah. Uh, but me being an artist, I know that you do it to save time. It's like, yeah, I don't want to actually have to color all this. So yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think we're also time. like we're like this com like the it for a couple for a couple ish, or for a couple months. It seemed like they were really going with this format of three color and two black and white story mm-hmm. in the magazine. And now they're. That. Like they're back up to four, like like you know you know because they had like Harmony, which was black and white, and Judge Karen, which was black and white. Yeah. Um. Now they're just at, now just this one's black and white. I think it's both time saving, and I think it might be um budgetary as well. Honestly, like I could I could totally understand that. I could see you know them, and this happened in two that like this happened sort of evolutionarily in two thousand AD as well, where it, well, but where that started out as a black and white comic and then they had like two color pages and then one story was in color and then you know three color two two black and white stories and then eventually yeah. full color right i guess that also makes sense with the digital uh adaptation as digital um forgiving less time hmm. Could um be, yeah even when, I, when i look at these pages though it looks like um they were colored with watercolor which makes me think that they there might actually be traditionally done um and then Printed black and white to save oh, I guess, printing costs. Uh, That's I mean, possible. There, there, there is an ink wash where you can this watercolor texture with black, but if you're doing that, I mean, you might as well color it. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about that. You think it's e- is like I wonder if it's easier to actually do something in color and then grayscale it for black and white if you're if you're using paints like that, or if uh, different shades of gray would be like a faster process yeah different shades of gray would definitely be faster because then you don't need to worry about what color it is you just need to worry about how dark it is um that's fair, yeah um so it was easier but it just i know ink wash is just not as like comic people just don't mm-hmm. i don't know it, it, it's a matter of taste yeah. preference and i'll say this one's also in like i think i you can see i think in some of the faces and stuff that occasionally Davis is sort of working from reference images, I think, just because I think you can yeah. really see some. I, I think especially with this good character, like mm-hmm. he, he doesn't really have a model for his face because he can very much vary from one panel to the next in terms of sort of mm-hmm. what like what he looks like, I feel like. And uh-huh. there's at right. least one that I swear is just like a Buster, a Buster Keaton that the uh, the old silent movie actor like still. Or, I That's don't know. funny. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Moving back and forth, I guess. I don't know. But um, I guess on the topic of new artists here in the magazine, let's keep going to story three, Mean Machine. Uh, script robot John Wagner, art robot Carl Critchlow, letter robot Steve Potter. First time in uh, on Big Mag 1 in the magazine for Carl Critchlow, 
who all introduced to you, Eli, by saying that he's another prolific magic card artist um, doing cards like uh, Sakura Tribe Elder, Phyrexian Arena, uh, Frenzied Goblin, Dark Steel Colossus, and many others. Dang it, I see it now. Every time you tell me this. It's it's literally me on um like oh like when I know they do magic cards I go on um, Gatherer like the uh, you know the Magic the Gathering card website mm-hmm. and you can do an advanced search where you just have them show cards by artist basically mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I literally just scroll through thinking like which one of these would Eli know off the top of his head you know <laughs> yes yep <laughs> you know me so well. Like, like which uh, one, which of these cards is like commander relevant, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Did this guy ever do yeah. a Sphinx, you know, right. Is, yep. All this that, stuff. <laughs> that'll give me every time. Uh, but I am curious, like, um, if they go and seek out, if like magic artists have a name for themselves at a certain point and they're sought out, or if they're just kind of on their hustle and they're just like, oh, wizards. Yeah. Whatever. Oh, uh, judge red wants it. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I think. Like this, I, I feel like it's very early days for Magic the Gathering at this point. Because, mm. like, you know, it sort of is first released in 1994, and this is 19, or in 1993, and this is 1994. So it's very much mm. like the dawn mm. of that particular game and stuff. I think it's, you know, I would, I would be shocked if you are like, it's got to be a point if you're an artist where this, like, Wizards eventually approaches you if you kind of have. Mm like a more fantastical style or something yeah. along their lines or your yeah. agents or, or like maybe like you have a you have a an art agent that has connections with them and stuff like that i could see that too yeah yeah that makes sense because i don't know the process but there's got to be just like a mechanism that's like hey you draw like right. swords and stuff you want right. to do a I magic card the, the uh i know as an artist it's um the if you i want to boil it down to layman's terms it's pretty much just keep drawing things and make sure you show yeah. people that you're drawing things. And then people were like, oh, I need this thing drawn. Oh, maybe I should get that guy that drew some stuff. Or... Yeah. And like eventually, kinda... if you draw enough landscapes, they got to get you in for to do a land or something at some point. Right. right? Exactly. Like they just, right. the, the, the need for lands must be, for land art must be constants in <laughs> gathering. You know, every set's got to have like whatever, five yeah. of each kind, you know? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, Mean Machine. Sorry, Magic decides. Um, it's been a little while since we've seen Mean Machine, the semi-immortal, headbutt-obsessed dread antagonist here. He's currently in jail, chained up in a padded room with wires hooked up to him. Of course, he's angry, but he's stuck, so he can't really do anything about it. Really fun moment of a deconstructed storytelling when the intercom says good morning, and you just see, like, Nine identical pictures of Mean Machine sitting, si- sitting silently and being like, "Is that so?" You know, he's like <laughs> questioning the goodness this morning. Right. Um, his doctor, Doctor Ramsbottom, asks about his head dial, which, of course, we know as he sets levels on it, it will make him more and more angry. One's mean, two's angry, four's downright brutal. You know, um, and then he has some sort of mechanism with like a conveyor belt that rolls out a head at like head level and uses that head for Mean Machine to headbutt it and measure the strengths of his headbutts. Then he starts electrocuting Mean. Oh no! 
Meanwhile, outside the old Pert Institute for the Criminally Insane, some medical tech guys wheel a patient in, drawing a gun on a receptionist when, they, when they're stopped. Back in the cell, the pain of the electricity makes me butt harder and harder. He's bocking his heart out as the medics start shooting their way in and finally arrive at Mean's cell. Mean's super pissed, of course, as he always is, but even more than usual. The guns and the gunmen demand Ram's bottom open the cell. The medics bust Mean. They they bust Mean free. And he's so ornery that he like almost rejects being rescued. They're like. We're here to rescue you, buddy. That's so only I decides when I get rescued. (laughs) But they say they were hired by his family, so he seems amenable. Once he's unchained, Mean swears revenge on Dr. Ramsbottom and goes up to four, butts right through a pane of bulletproof glass. But as he does a flying headbutt, he misses and instead flies right into the generator that was shocking him. And that electrocution knocks him out. He should do. It's probably for the best, to be honest, because he means that he's not like interfering in his own rescue now. So the guys <laughs> tie him up to the gurney and take the doctors hostage. They pile into their car and head out, leave a gas bomb behind, and then drive through the streets of Mega City One as a voice talks to a dolly, hoping that they found him. That would be, and I hope he'll be nice, not bad like Ma. The truck arrives and Mean Machine comes to breaking the chains, holding him. And then he suddenly realizes like 30 minutes in, like, hey, wait a minute. All my family's dead. How could they have come and had you bust me out? But a voice tells him that his family ain't all dead. As a cute kid with a lock of blonde hair, overalls and a black and yellow striped shirt, you know, kind of a Charlie Brown feel, if I'm honest. And a cute little girl doll runs out. He calls mean pa and daddy and because he's his son. Mean Junior! Whoa! Next next time on Son of Mean Machine, the sissy. Dang. This kid's going to make fun of Mean Machine and call him a sure. Oh, that's Uh, that's the hope, certainly. Rather that than... (laughs) What's actually what's probably actually going to happen between me and being a being a mean bullying dad? Don't appreciate mm-hmm. that. It's tough. Yeah, it reminds me, it reminds me of um uh, uh Al's baby of like clearly murderous uh no uh emotional control gets a kid cute and innocent just wants him you know, whatever yeah um yeah. May, but I guess maybe is also maybe a monster. You know, one can hope, you know, I'll tell you that in the in the early like we've seen flashbacks when me machine was a kid back when he was just mean pre machine. And he was actually like a nice, like nerd kid, like very interested in flowers and stuff like that. And so because he was so nice, they um, kidnapped a doctor and like attached all of the mean machine parts to him, basically to like, make him a baddie. Oh yeah. Sorry. I said, yeah, the couple of ways they can take this story. Most of them are bad, but I'm down for the ride. Let's see where it goes. Yeah. Come on. See these adventures. And I just really love how they all, they all like this happened in um, 2000 AD as well, but I love when they get like a really like good, like detailed artist to do these mean machine stories. I think. Mm, yeah. Like, this is such a fun character that I think also having them have pre- pretty good art. You know, comedy. Cool. Honestly, I didn't remember a lot of the machine like um, character cross between Popeye and uh, uh, but uh, yeah, it's- yeah, we're. D- 
We're definitely, yeah, we're definitely starting to see more, or, you know, th- this character has only shown up a little bit. He hasn't been a real constant presence, I think. We've seen one or two mean stories in the course, in the course of uh, the magazine, I think. I, I, I definitely know there was that uh, You Are a Mean Machine story a couple of months, or a bunch of issues. Right, I remember that. Um, so continuing on, we go to uh, Covers, Features, and Dreadlines. Issue 63, a very simple color cover for this issue by Mark Wilkinson with just dread shooting into the foreground with a big fr- uh, frown. I appreciate that the inside cover also admits this one's very based on uh, Brian Ball and that artist, uh, dread work. The editorial welcomes new and returning readers of the magazine as part of the big launch for Wilderlands. Besides uh, just having some big new and returning artists, this cover or this comic also came with a scratch card like uh, that was taped to the cover where lucky non-overseas winners could win 5,000 pounds or 5,000 pounds worth of goods if you were under 18. That's 5,000 pounds of currency, not 5,000 pounds. Right. No, I got it. I got there. Too many goods. And then it also tells us to start getting hyped for the Dread movie, of course, closer and closer. Dreadlines, a letter page, also has a mix of praise and criticism and a demand for more Calhab justice, as well as some general hopes that Wilderlands will be special in some way. Issue 64, Carl Critchlow provides a very fun cover with a jacked mean machine being very incredulous about his wimp of a son and his dog. They do have the same yeah. ears, though. They both got these big yeah, old ears coming off. Definitely his kid. Yeah, they definitely they got the resemblance. And the editorial is mostly about the attached femme fatale, femme fatale uh, supplement, about which more later. It also announces, though, that shooting has started in the Dread movie with some casting for the non-Stallone roles in that film. The Inquisition feature is back with a bunch of questions. Uh, the main ones are, uh, what color is Dredd's uniform? Uh, it's black, but has blue highlights. That's the thing. You know, it's like a Superman's hair. In light, it shines blue or something like that. His his uh, club is called a day stick. He's either 50 or 55, depending on how you count it, because he's a clone and they brought him out of the tube with the physical age of five years old. So if you count it from when he came out of the tube, he's 50. But if you count it for how old he was when you brought him out of the tube, 55, you see? Yeah. And then all, but all, and then also they asked about like, if he'll ever retire and um, because he's had multiple rejuvenations and stuff like that, like he's got the body of a much younger man, plus futuristic medical science, no plans to retire either then or now 30 years later. Um, you also learn that there is a new video game for Dread coming in, coming out to tie into the movie. And I remember playing that game on the Super Nintendo way back in the day at the time. Very exciting times. You could you could arrest people instead. It's very exciting. There's also a call for questions about the Dread movie. Dreadlines has a lot of hope for Wilderlands um, as well, and then a lot of fairly mean letters that don't like anything. Like I think between, if you go over all the letters and the letters pages, you know, no, no stories universally acclaimed. Everything has got at least one person being very angry. <laughs> Although also weirdly, every pretty much every story also has like people being like in like liking it and like singing its praises yeah. as well. Like there's some. 
things I in, in these letter pages I would not have expected, like uh, negative statements about Carlos Sascara and positive statements about mm. Creep. You know, it's, right. it's all yeah, over the place. It's the nature of art. I'll, I'll get into a debate about that later. Though. Yeah, come on. I guess yeah. everybody likes something. Yeah. In theory, I guess. And speaking of things that everybody, or no, that some people like, let's move. <laughs> no, that's a jerk thing to say. Good Lord. <laughs> couple of these letters come let, I'll, I'll do a different one eli a couple of these letters come from scotland and speaking of scotland eli <laughs> let's talk about story four cal have justice Jeffrey about Jim Alexander, art robot Colin McNeil and John, John Ridgway, letter robot John Beeston and Ellie DeVille so we're back here in Calhab Dreadworld Scotland um with Colin McNeil on this one, I like his take on this story. Add some whimsy to some of these Scottish things, like a lot of like you know people with like fancy pouches on their kilts and things like that. It's like a, like a fox one that'd be fun. Um, judges McBrain and Shahalian are chilling out, chowing down at McSwiney's, you know, clearly an ultra Scottish McDonald's here. When some masked and kilted robbers, these so-called pirates of Penniquick, which is a town in Scotland, show up and try to stick the place up. But they also, when they see McBrain, so that they're here to issue a challenge that McTash of the Campbell clan, of the Campbell whiskey clan, is challenging him to a duel. The judges quickly arrest the pirates and McBrain rides out to meet the challenge in Denistoon ca- Castle. And Denistoon is a part of Glasgow, but not there isn't a castle there, so this appears to be a fairly recent construction, perhaps from post-war rubble or something. Though we do see some graffiti with the very Scottish phrasing and sentiment of uh, English oot new, you know. McBrain rolls in, just casually kicking people and beating them up and stuff. And McTash is waiting for him. He's this big mus- muscly dude with a big axe. He's been. He's been on the chocolate comm plan and will broadcast this fight to pirate on pirate cable networks nationwide. Chocolate comm plan is like it's like insure or like like a protein shake yeah, basically. Advertised. advertised at the time, I guess. Anyway, even the judges are watching this fight and making bets on Ed Big Brain kicking ass, basically. Um They go to fight, but because he's just eaten like 10 burgers at the start of the story, McBrain's all heavy and slow. Ah, geez, he's not in a fighting shape. All seems lost when Ed lets out a massive fart and then, in the confusion, fumbles for his sporan, which is what they call the little pouch thing on the front of kilts. I I just learned that term today, Eli, so I'm feeling it out knowledge i've gained so he fumbled he goes to go in there but mctash is like oh what are you going for all oh, reach my hand into that pouch instead and what he does is a goddamn bear trap hidden inside of it it gets crushed on his hand like ah, oh, god this is a bear trap <laughs> this leaves him open to mcbrain being able to hit him with the headbutt and win the fight glasgow kiss as they say after a tense moment the whiskey clan hails mcbrain and they all get drunk as you do Later in the night, over whiskey, they even offer him the chieftainhood, which he accepts. Good times. Listen, he's had a lot. He's drinking a lot of whiskey himself. And indeed, later that night, the judges show up to take him home, to sort of like put a blanket around him and sort of walk him onto the ship, basically. Like, I could have been chief. They're like, all right, buddy, let's get you home. Drink some water and stuff. It's a pity he can't be chief, 
but the other um, clan Campbell guys say, say that it wouldn't have worked because he would have single-handedly drunken them out of business. So they see a giant pile of empty whiskey bottles that he's drinking in this night. It's a fun little one-off here. And that takes us to the second half. John Ridgway, the creator of CalHab, back on art for this part of the story, or for this new story, as we're really focusing on this uh, Shehalian character. After that incident where he, like, found out that he was uh, genetically engineered and went crazy, raising, psychically raising the spirits of the dead, and McBrain killed him, but then he came back to life and promised to be good, basically. Right. It was a whole thing. So, following that, McBrain's being sent on work leave to Britsit. They're basically kicking him out of Calhab for a little while, like, come back later. Um, and his partner, Bookin, is worried that, like, he's just gone nuts, as, as has the rest of Calhab after the raising of the dead and stuff like that. And we just get an aside of some tourists talking about the atrocities of the ghost attack, which features the thing that I look for the most by the artist John Ridgway, which is pictures of crying mm-hmm. children, which he's best at. No one... No one makes a kid cry like him, and there's a, there's a sterling example. Return to Judge Shehalian, back from the dead, and under constant guard, feeling sorry for himself. Um, it, but it seems he's on the road back to being a judge, but will stay on house arrest for a while. He holds his wife, and we see that things not all is well, because like he like hugs her, and his narration box is like thinking about all the ways that he could kill her at this moment. Break every bone in her spine. But instead, I'm just being cool. Like, I don't know, buddy. Um, also, I should mention here, it seems like we're really going to be focused on Shehalian here, which I'm not a fan of because his name is very hard to type, Eli. Like, I basically, <laughs> for these sections, I just keep it, like, on the clipboard and just control V every they, time I need to mention yeah. them. Basically. Smarter, not harder. Yeah. You know, modern solutions or modern problems require modern solutions. Buckins also just got the news and goes in to yell at the chief inspector, both for bringing back Shehalian and getting rid of McBrain. And he's like, oh, there's nothing we can do. You know, he's the only empath in Scotland. We need him for our side division. We see a copy of the Calhab Chronicle newspaper that's just full on propaganda showing Shehalian as the hero of the ghost attack, not the cause of it. And like using all of this. They call him, oh, he's saved by a super psi guy. Whoa. You know, him like flying through space, talking about he and his wife are expecting a child, all this other stuff, which is a is a central stressor for him, we'll recall. Just that like he's like in lab grown summary. But he wants a kid. That's what's very important. He yes. wants to have a child. Um, in civilian clothes, we see Shehalian playing that uh she loves me, she loves me not game, like pulling the plucking the petals off the flower but also using his massive psychic abilities to regrow the petals as he does so. It's like a metaphor. I don't know. Um, today, he says he's meeting his maker at the Westbury Rest Home. He talks to the nurse at the front desk, instantly uses his uh, mind, his telepathy powers to like scan her and learn her darkest secrets, and then like making her let him into the building. He enters a room, and we see a figure in a wheelchair sitting in shadow blind and decrepit apparently Shehalian closes the door and remembers his past memories both the real ones of being born in a lab and the fake ones of being birthed by some occult standing stones in like the moors of Scotland today he finds out who he really is as he opens the blinds and the old person asks if someone is there ooh it's ominous 
Next time, songs in the sky. Very interesting. Yeah. I wonder where they're going to go with this one. But we're definitely like, this feels like, yeah, we're definitely having this. It feels like a villain interlude with this character. Exactly. Yes. And uh, I was glad that you uh, brought up that uh, these two stories weren't made by the same artist. I read the title. I was like, yeah, same guy. But no, when I look, I'm like, oh, very different. They use. No, there's, yeah, there's definitely some variations yeah, between the two are, artists. Uh, black and white. Sure. I don't want people thinking I'm off my rocker. They both do use uh, black and white predominantly line art and a level of cross hatching. Uh, but they definitely have different styles. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, it uses black uh, much more heavily. Um, and uh, implies a lot of things through shadows, while the other one just uses a little bit more mm. traditional cross-hatching and not as stylized. Interesting. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, th- I feel like John Ridgway is the more old school of the two, mm. I guess. I'll tell you this from just from what I know of their careers, mm. I guess. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. And, you know, also the stories are very different. One uh, is just all about sci-fi, psychic, evil stuff, and one's about farting on your opponent and getting it on the bear trap. yeah. It's it's definitely a massive a massive tonal shift from one to the other. Like especially from like you know the first like the the Colin McNeil one starts with McBrain and Shalyan apparently being friends getting burgers together, whereas this one is more he's more more ominous and everyone's traumatized by the previous story and stuff like that. Social uh, or political propaganda about you know covering up things or spinning them in different ways. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that, I got to say, of like how they spin this zombie mm-hmm. attack and be like, oh, yeah, no, I'm flying through the air. As it <laughs> the well, that was interesting because like both like this story. Yeah, because this story ends up having a basically a prologue with one artist and then the acts uh, the, the start of a multi-issue story mm-hmm. with a different artist. Right. We see that again in our next story. Story five, Armitage. Love that segue. Come on, buddy. Yeah, professional. Um, script robot for Armitage, Dave Stone, art robots, Peter Doherty and Charles Gillespie, lettering robot, Annie Parkhouse. And so um, we, we got Wilderlands underway earlier in the episode, but now we're also going to flash back to the previous big crossover story, which is uh, the story Judgment Day from two years ago. So this... You know, our last couple Armitage stories have been like deep flashbacks to the the 2070s before times. This one's a much more smaller flashback to 24 to 2114 and Judgment, but still a flashback. We're still not in modern times with Armitage for some reason. But instead, we're back in the zombie apocalypse of uh, Judgment Day. The dead are walking around and threatening Britsit, but the most but. Because the city's mostly bordered by water, it's pretty much okay. Like, they could, you know, there's just one area that they have to watch for zombie incursion, except for the fact that the city's also full of mausoleums. And so, you know, suddenly there's a million dead people just randomly in buildings coming to life as well, right. which you don't right. want, basically. These ones also seem to be talking, which is not a feature of other Judgment Day zombies and kind of disturbing. Side Division is interrogating um, someone to sort of see what's up with the dead and they explain that the that the waking of the dead is the op- is an opening of the door which a mysterious force will step through to cleanse and purify the infected earth bringing death to the world by blade and ram skull meanwhile armitage and his partner treasure steel now looking very butch with like a flat or, or sorry looking very sorry i met, i i put them together cuz it's i i said punch in my uh, in my recap <laughs> 
that's a combination of punk and butch because she's got this flap top and fingerless gloves and leather jacket and stuff like that. I think they'll catch on. Let's, let's keep, stay with it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, they talk about her having a hand replaced. Um, and it's still very like pale instead of having skin color. And I don't remember her losing an arm, I must say. But I, yeah. I guess so. I think maybe that, that, that would have been in the Treasure Steel and Hershey. Really didn't happen. That's my my stance on it. I don't I don't think it <laughs> happened, but I don't know. Um, but the hands and the hands still pale white because she you know she's black and so like her new hand yeah, the, is still the like, melanin needs to get transferred to it. The melanin yeah. is exactly it's got to work its way in. As they talk, a shot rings out. A doomsday prophet with a gun and this kind of like it's like a skylight into window into his yes. brain on his skull. The brain needs that sunlight for you know vitamin D. How's it going to grow? You know? um, but he's shooting up the place, prophesizing about doom. Meanwhile, in Sector 2, some robed figures are doing a ritual with a cup of blood, a ram skull, and a blade. Like, they're Satanists, but they also seem to be, like, I don't know, Eastern Christmas Satanists, because they sort of do the ritual. And then they're like, all right, let's go get tea and biscuits. But suddenly something blood splattering happens, which doesn't seem good for them. The judges jump to react. Treasure Steel runs to draw fire as Armitage steals a hover bike. Before Treasure or before Steel can get shot, Armitage sends the bike flying at high speed straight into the killer, shlunking into him and killing him as well. Just excellent. The day is saved, but their jerk boss judge, Judge Warner, has a new job for Armitage and Steel. We just head down to the Orthodox Satanist Church in Sector 2 and investigate a possible, mm-hmm. just, you know, the church we just saw. They arrive to find a bloody scene and complete with insane writing and blood on the walls, which, if you think way back to the very early days of the magazine, is not unlike these notes that Armitage was sent in the course of that first mm-hmm. Armitage story. Yeah. He had kind of these Jack the Ripper-like, mm. poorly spelled yeah. notes right. written yeah. in blood. If I was a murderer, it was all over the place. Oh, you're okay. <laughs> I would use symbols. That's my thing. If I was a murderer, I would use symbols and iconography to explain my big evil plan. Ah, Eli's the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. Confirmed. Bad times. I, I was alive during the beginning of the Zodiac Killer. Huh. Anyway. I don't think you were alive for any of it. Yeah, that's probably true. But, you know, right. still. Still. <laughs> That time right. travel shenanigans. That's what the Zodiac killer like. would want you to think. Right, exactly. Exactly, exactly. Charles Gillespie takes over on art as we fully start this City of the Dead story. We're checking in on some supporting characters here as well as we see forensic scientists, uh, you know, the coroner, Mary Turner, stapling closed wounds, or stapling wounds, stapling wounds right, yes. closed yeah. on the front lines of judgment wounds. Day. Like, that's not, makes it way worse. I got confused on the word order. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. She's just using a, using a staple right. gun, which I think is actually what they use in like the hospital. So, I think like or depending yeah, on the I size, it's right? Because it will hold it, and it only has two punctures, two uh, small things. I just don't like the katunk sound yeah. it makes. I would wouldn't want that on my body. But you know, desperate times, I guess. A big thing I learned from a friend of mine was an orthopedist was that there's like there are times where medicine is more like carpentry <laughs> than anybody really likes to apply important yeah, i can only imagine <laughs> meanwhile armitage and steel are investigating this murder there's 13 dead 
big letters in blood written on the walls about the day of judgment. The bodies have cruciform wounds, which give them a religious feel. But Armitage notices something interesting on one of the bodies. And I think it's that there's a trio of holes on like their neck, like a triangle of like puncture wounds or something. But it's not, you know, this is one of those like mystery story, ah, a clue kind of things. They don't tell you what the clue is. At the behemoth housing project, some thugs, one of them with big orc fangs sort of implanted along his jawline, um, harassed an extremely buff lady with black hair and a black dress. She says she's looking for her family and then seems to find it as some, you know, demon types suddenly appear and start attacking the thugs. Back at the new old Bailey, Armitage is arguing with Warner about following up on the killing and he goes to consult Psy Judge Mordecai, who's got a lot of, like, face piercings, shirtless and stuff. He does have a little Armitage voodoo doll in the foreground. Um, that was the guy who was being tortured and asked for questions on the first. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's the same I know guy. From the, I thought the eyebrow piercings were interesting, so. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely noticeable. Yeah, he's in a more, chi- he's more in a more mm, sedate yes, mood yes. at this point. Um, so he sees, he knows the killer will strike again. He talks about there being nine rituals, nine circles he must complete, and the lustful and lascivious will be next. Armitage thinks they might need help with this, so soon he and Steele are in the dragon sector, a twisting maze of crime and sex where they meet hacker-slash-sex worker Lisa Marsh, this blonde hacker lady from a previous, also previous Armitage story, wearing this all-leather getup with underboobs right. cut out right. of it. Yeah, I breathe. See, lower, the lower cleavage. It's the right. bearer yes. of the cleavage. <laughs> um, hearing some hints, um, or based on some hints, they go to the Chalice of Blood Club. Like uh, Mordecai said that he kept seeing an image of a black hourglass. And the Chalice of Blood is sort of black hourglass shaped. So they go there. And it's this like a leather bar with lots of lots of stuff going on as Judgment Day approaches. Everybody is getting their freak on. Zombie hordes approach. A buff dude in a harness and fishnet and, and a fishnet shirt greets them and apparently knows treasure steal from her pre-judge past. Whoa, it's <laughs> mysterious. Uh, Steele says that she got married and basically lives a vanilla life. And the man Axel, wa- who's named Axel, walks off. We see he's wearing a mini skirt. And then suddenly the ground cracks open beneath him and a bunch of naked techno demons come from underneath the floor and attack. Oh, no. Really putting a damper on the vibe. Or yeah, come easy. on. I don't know. Kind of chill. Know. It depends. I guess it would depend on what you're into. I feel like these techno demons don't seem very interested in enthusiastic consent. Well, I mean, that, I'll say for, that. Much. Techno demon in the front is just all tongue. He's just like licking people's faces. Like I don't know if that's supposed to be intimidating, yeah. but I don't know. I'm just saying that you have to get. You know, people have to yeah, buy yeah. into that. You know, you can't. You you shouldn't just j- right. don't j- just, just come do out it. of your hellscape and just start licking faces, right? Yeah, just don't burst out of the floor right. and start yeah. licking folks. I do like that no? be Lick cool. demon has a I love mom tattoo on his shoulder just to be like, hey, I'm relatable, you know, <laughs> just like you guys. Kinder, yeah. gentler, naked murder right. demon from hell, you know, good times. <laughs> Next time in Armitage, eating. So I'm I'm happy to be back, back in slightly the present with this story, I, I got to say. It's weird that it's happening now and not like... Two years ago, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. Like that, it didn't happen closer to Judgment Day, I guess, because it seems very weird that we moved on to another crossover, and now we're sort of having the after, like 
what Armitage did during the, during Judgment Day. Right. At yeah. the same now, the time. The jumping around has always been a particularly confusing to me. Like, okay, so this happened and that, or is that the same guy or they, they, they changed? I just assume everyone's new. Yeah. I assume everyone dies every time, except for the uh, couple, <laughs> like three. Except for, yeah, except for like Armitage and, right. and Treasure. Although, like, she always has a different look as well, which also makes it hard yeah. to track her. She's got a very Madonna-like right. quality. I think it's also um because uh, the magazine kind of goes through different times. You know, sometimes we're in the future or past, present. So, like, I'm always waiting to, like, get a foundation, but we're always in some sort of nebulous, I predict future. I just assume future. Yeah, I mean, I would say... Yeah, like we're usually, unless it really says, I think the default is that we're sort of keep track, keeping keeping up with the Judge Dread timeline, yeah, I guess. Like Missionary. Roughly, yeah. So, so like stuff like Missionary Man, um, Calhab Justice, um, I mean, Mean Machine, and I think uh, Judge Dread, or, well, Judge Dread, of course, are all happening simultaneously with mm-hmm. Judge Dread, which are sort of in this, you know, world, in this world of mega cities and judges, sort of roughly 122 years in the future from when the story is mm-hmm. published, mm-hmm. I guess. So, you know, it and it'll sort of roughly be that way. Although, especially when big things are happening in dread, this could be a problem just because oftentimes big things happening in dread are not reflected by similar things happening <laughs> in other stories. Right. Yes. Every once, like there was one judge Anderson story that was like a, like a big crime happened, like like a big thing happens in Anderson, and then we go to Dread, and Dread's picking up pieces mm-hmm. from that crime or something like that. But that's not, right. I don't know. That's the end of our story. That's the end of our issues. But we've still got stuff to talk about, Eli, because we've got a third one here with Story Six Femme Fatale Supplement. This is just a little booklet that was included with issue 64 of the magazine. It's just a blatant attempt to sell issues with sexy pinups of characters, essentially. (laughs) Like, not, in terms of effectiveness, probably not the worst tactic, I guess. Uh, I I remember in this era, there being, like, special, like, like I I was reading a lot of, like, Marvel comics, and those would have, like, these swimsuit issues that would just be, like, all the superheroes right. like in right. bathing suits yeah. and stuff like with b- right. by their yeah, artists take breaks from all the world saving and uh yeah just wear this wear this on the beach it's fine absolutely yeah i guess so i i i you know i can definitely see the board meeting where where they decide <laughs> right. to do it you it's, know? it's always funny because like maybe it's because i'm a very large nerd that i'm actually more interested in like their hobbies like i'd rather know like where Wonder Woman likes to go eat than like what she looks like in a bikini. Like she, they're they're already barely wearing clothes as it is. Like I know what they look like. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, especially for superheroes, like there are times where they'll put on like lingerie and be wearing more clothes (laughs) than wear in the course of their, of their standard adventures. It's, it's funny. Uh, But yeah, I think it's always, um, because they're trying to appeal to their target audience, which I assume are teen boys or, yeah always you know young adult men but uh yeah it's it's fine (laughs) yeah no you know yeah it's basically just yeah they just the whole thing is just each um you know there's sort of a section for each like recent female character basically and there's sort of a a one-page blurb on their background with some upcoming plans for that Mm -hmm. character and then sort of a full page 
pinup image. It's quickly going up, going down. The lineup is uh, there's a Judge Anderson by Steve Sampson, of course, you know, based on a lingerie spread, you know, at, or a model spread, as you'd assume mm-hmm. from Sampson. There's uh, Becky Steele from Pan African Judges by the artist Siku, and she has two mm-hmm. pinups actually. One with a metal bikini and a lion, the other doing a version of that iconic uh, Janet Jackson Uh hand bra cover from Rolling Stone, which I feel like, listen, you know what I'm talking about. If you're even, even, even vaguely nineties associated, that's a, uh, it's a cover that, that you'll remember. Um, There's judge Karen by Dean Ormstrom, which confirms her redhead status, I guess was apparently based on her, uh, on Dean's girlfriend at the time. This one's, this one's kind of fun just because it's in the style of like a, an old pulp magazine. So it says like, you know, got a title of like spicy mystery mm-hmm. tales. She's got a knife in like her, in her right. uh, yeah. pantyhose. Yeah, was- then we once again have that one Britsit Babes cover by, by Brian Ball. And they love mm-hmm. throwing this at us. I feel like I've seen this like five times. Mm-hmm. In the right. Then there's a uh, Judge Aiko Inaba from uh, Shimura by Duke Mighton, who's a new artist, but we'll see him doing some stuff in 1995 as she lounges in a futuristic stringless mm. bikini on a Hondo Judge right. bike. I forgot if I could grade these on order of like most like uh, clearly to be sexy. And then some of them are like, yeah, I see some artistic, like there's some things I noticed that I think are pretty cool on this. Uh, <laughs> but later. I'm interested yeah. to hear the ratings, I guess. Um, then there's a Harmony Krieg from Harmony by artist Jim Murray, who did the most recent Harmony story. And she's like sat down in spandex with a big old right. gun. You know, that was a big laser sight is good. Um, there's Treasure Steel by Charles Gillespie. And she's wearing like kind of a Union Jack leather one, extremely ass forward right. pose. Yes. He's kind of giving away the goods here a little bit, to be honest. Um, Although I will say one, I think it's that um, it's the uh, it's the hacker lady, uh, Lisa. Like, there's two people in this story and, or in this pinup, and one isn't acknowledged. But I think it's Lisa, the, the blonde lady in the background of this one. Though I'll mention that both she or that um, treasure had a a tattoo of like two female symbols, like right. with a circle or lock, which made me realize that actually they're constantly at pains for her to say that she's married and she has a spouse and that spouse is named Terry, but you know, Terry, not Terry, not a gendered name. I think I might've said that she has a husband, but that might be be, me being as assuming things that have not been actually entered into evidence. Yeah. Yeah. If that tattoo's canon, then yeah, I think uh, we have to make some, uh, adjustment make some make some counter assumptions very progressive 1994 (laughs) lesbian marriages good time and then the final full page has what i think is an amazing uh dread picture posed in front of giant neon dread letters the big gold dread belt the burger and fries in the background he's basically like dread as fat elvis with some saturday night fever Mm. stuff in here Art, but it, it's not credited. But I look, but uh, I, I've been told by several people that it's by Trevor Harrison, and I love this. I love this dread picture. I want a tattoo on my back. <laughs> I'm really into it. And the supplement ends with a very cute picture of dread by by Frank Whiteley with a lawman in his pajamas in a Justice Department sleep pod, reading a book with some tea and biscuits, as well as like his teddy his, and his lawgiver by his side. Head. Um... Uh, sleep cap on 
on his helmet. Yeah, he, he's got a sleeping cap on over his helmet. And then just all of his like um, clothes and pads and gear and stuff are sort of strewn all over the, ro- the, yeah. the room right. and stuff. This is a real great like right, bedtime dread dread. picture right. that I think is really Reading funny. the law, got his little animal. None of it, I mean, none of this is illegal. All this is by the books. I like to imagine that actually the the stuffed animal that like like the, the teddy bear he's had is actually required <laughs> by law. Like he doesn't. It's not even right. his. It's like when dre- when judges sleep, they have to have a teddy bear because it's like a a PR move or something to kind of keep them having empathy. Or something like that um, that's funny. hands off my teddy, citizen. Right, exactly. That kind of stuff. <laughs> But with that, Eli, we've reached the end of our, or actually, no, sorry. What are your, like, do you have any oh, ratings yeah. or a, any of these ones that you like more notes. than the others? I, guess? I do like the um, uh, Cassandra yeah. Anderson one. Um, I believe this artist used, does a lot of referencing for models. I, uh, the anatomy is really well. So I have trouble assuming that they made this up. I think they had someone pose and then they uh, did it. And I, I think that one uh, works well. Um, uh, Becky Steele uh, definitely drawing some references from some different things uh, but very painterly I like how the uh, paint is applied um, the uh, cool colors and warm colors together although that's the anatomy falls apart in some areas but that's fine I kind of like also just just how Siku kind of plays around with those two mm, little tails right. on her, yeah, like, like, like these two two like like hair tails that come off the front of her yeah, head like an no, antenna. Yeah. That I, he does some fun stuff yeah. with, I think. Um, uh, Karen, I like I think the most only because it's sexy, but it's like a, a more rounded sexy. It's just like a cute kind of cool thing. Um, it's not just like here's where my boobs and butt are. Like it's it's like a uh, hey maybe shoulders back. Yeah. We're going to be a little more painterly and I'll stab somebody. I'm like, hey, good on you, girl. Um, Birds and Babes, I've seen that one a couple times. It's cool. It's, it's fine, but it's, it's just kind of is what it is. Uh, yeah. um, uh, 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 Aiko, uh, I like this one. This one's very clearly just like, here's pretty much a naked woman. But um, I do give a lot of points for the background. <laughs> they have a really nice cityscape back there. And actually um, how this artist draws feet. I don't know if that clearly they've been practicing, but they did a really good job. Listen, that's a rare skill in the exactly. in 90s comic books. You like that stuff. Like, so they're like, hey. I, I do remember a bunch of those Marvel ones being by <laughs> Liefeld famously does not do feet. Right. So yeah. Whatever. So, uh, yeah. Th- so this artist is just kind of displaying their skill and being like, hey, I can do whatever. Don't even worry about it. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's, I think it's the most, um, eh, I wouldn't even say it's the most egregious, like, hey, I'm trying to be sexy. It's like, hey, I just can do a lot of stuff. Don't worry about it. Harmony, I really yeah. like. Very subdued. Great use of texture. Um, I believe they used some spray uh, techniques on this one uh, to get a lot of depth and uh, gradient. I think that one's pretty cool. Uh, Treasure Steel, I think, is the most egregious. Like, look at this butt. I, uh, I also assume uh, some reference for this one as well. But yeah, yeah, it's a, I don't know, it's a little too obvious. I do wish to, a little bit more uh, subtle with it. But yeah, what can you do? Um, yeah. Dreads. Put it away. Uh, Dreads is uh, also awesome. I also agree. Uh, great, great use of lighting, great use of reference. And it's uh, funny. Dread doing funny stuff. I, I don't see that a lot. So whenever he's doing it. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's the most lighthearted right. dread yeah. in a long time. And I like I they think. put something in there for uh uh you know the ladies or the guys if they like dread you know it's whatever. Uh, uh, yeah. But uh, whenever they do something that's like fan servicey or like hey look we're just gonna do hot chicks I'm like get a guy in there you know for you make it make it fair. Uh, 
So I'm glad they at least got Dread in there. Although I do think they could have put uh, some Armitage or who's that vampire guy we have now? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Devlin Wall. Yeah, they yeah, missed Devlin. opportunity on that. They definitely could have had some Devlin Wall action going. But yeah, no, overall fun though. Fantastic. So with that said, Eli, I must know what's your top Ooh. of bottom thrills? It's it's funny. We didn't have um, as many ones. Uh, we had a couple ones that were uh, like uh, s- single stories, but they were always like, yeah, oh, here's a missionary man. But there's two stories. They're just both, you know, short. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I found that interesting. Um, but uh, I'd have to say um, top would be. Um, um, oh, oh, sorry. Be- 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 before you go, I, I should just mention that, you know, because we're in the wilder zone for dread, it's sort of not in contention Ooh. for either. That's Either fine. one here. Yeah. You know, we're recording Not that yet, separately. So totally good. Um, uh, so I'd say my uh, top would be uh, Mean Machine. I don't know if it's because I'm new to this character, but just a guy, angry headbutt and stuff uh, was good. I, I predict it's going to do some things later with this kid that maybe I won't agree with, but so far it's just about a guy being chained up, headbutting heads, getting angrier, and I like that he just headbutts through glass and then executes himself. Just... Uh, absolutely apparently that's all i need to for my uh, my humor um uh uh bottom i'll put um uh, missionary man the uh particularly the treasure of the uh sierra murder um just uh i think it's maybe because it's a continuity thing it's some guy who is like i'm not trustworthy telling a story so the whole time i'm like did any of this happen are you gonna is is all this a lie uh which is weird i didn't know i had that bias but um uh but i'm not like i don't find myself being curious like oh where's it gonna go i'm like all right so like what's the punchline like my guard's way too high up on the uh the story um uh, but hopefully you know it ends ends fun. but uh as things are now yeah that's uh <laughs> that's where i'm at but i mean overall though uh, a lot of good ones like there wasn't anything that i um felt like i just ran the opposite direction on so I think that's a testament to its uh, quality. Yeah, yeah I, I I definitely agree that, that this was a pretty good month, to be honest, in terms of like you know all the stories were pretty decent. Like like I had a good time reading all, and there wasn't any like no real like I don't know stinkers or like oh like I can't wait mm-hmm. for the story right. to be. I might actually, I'll definitely agree with you. The Meme Machine is my top story. I thought that was a really you no, know, and I'm always always up for humor. That's always really fun mm-hmm. for me. That, that, that's something I, I always really look for and. Um, me machine was on that and just good art funny story and yeah just sort of being being part of this world that i think is, or you know bring us back to this the, the world of this character that mm. i bring for my i'm surprised you didn't go a cow have justice that was my money on it i was like he's gonna pick family snapshot because he, he knows what's gonna come and he thinks this is a good setup uh i might actually oh, put that snap. on bottom if just because like i don't know like i didn't really like the the whiplash of this funny story, one issue into this like kind of like creepy murder story. Mm, the next one. Right. <laughs> That's interesting. Like, I wouldn't or, even thought to compare the two and put that into the grade, but it did create that experience. I don't know. Cause maybe this is probably being harsh, I guess, but for me, like I kind of like stories to have a yeah. consistent, like individual stories to have a consistent, mm. I guess. And I think it's one thing if it's dread and like, you know, dreads always in the comic. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. of that, even when he goes dark, it's still funny. You know, you yeah, dread. It, it can be dark, it can be light. It runs this gamut because it's mm. so consistent. And but there's you know, this character's always there. But for pretty much anything else, like I kind of 
I want to know yeah. what I'm getting before I, I read the story, you know? And I sort of like, well, why not, you know, why not make this like Judge Shahalian or something yeah. like that? Like, and have that story be a different tone than regular Cal Have Justice, which is much more of the first story we read of this sort of goofy future right. Scotland. Yeah. You know, I think that's fair. I think it's totally fair. You know, tellingly in the first story, everyone wears kilts. In the second story, most people don't, <laughs> right. you know, I think it makes sort sense. Of like, well, what, like, what setting are we going with here, you know? <laughs> Um, and yeah, and I think that one might just be my, yeah, again, honestly, mostly just for yeah. the tone differences. I'll back you stuff. up, Conrad. If anyone gives you any uh, slack for it, uh, I got you on it. Because I'll mention that actually one of the letters in Dreadlines made this similar point about um, about Missionary Man, I guess, and just how there's yeah, been some differences sure. in tone in that yeah. story, too. And I, I definitely see that as well. And sort of, it hasn't escaped my notice, I guess, but. Maybe with that one, because it sort of stays westerny or yeah. something, it's sort of holding up along it. Like, it, like even if it goes from like being com- like silly to serious, it sort of stays yeah. a western yeah. enough. And, I mean, there's always a silly element to it. I think when they were fighting, um, the thing that was like, "Oh, I am Legion," like I know, but even- yeah, like even even when it's serious, it's still sort of got the ridiculousness of being about oh, sci-fi exactly. cowboys yeah, right say, even like, legion even though that was as dark as it got it still went like oh i'm under these rocks and now i came out and like the second coming i'm like yeah i get it oh no i'm so i'm gonna dump them in yeah. a thing of lava i'm like all right so all that works and on the ridiculousness yeah. didn't you fight like a clown and a pumpkin like it was like a halloween yeah that's what i'm yeah exactly i i think that's what it was talking about where it's sort of like well you've got this you know you've got this one story about like this woman being killed for being different by the mm. townsfolk and that being like a ghost mm. story. But then you've also got just a weird, like a sort of a, a funnier story about bandits that are yeah. Halloween themed you know, going on as well. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Hey, with that, we've reached the end of the show. Good times. I hope everyone enjoyed it. As always, you can find Big Meg One on iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or, or our podcast site, BigMegOne.com. Contest at BigMegOne at gmail.com. The 2080 forums are our Facebook and Twitter pages. For all those, Big Meg One, written out, and you'll find us. Feel free to just drop us a rating or review wherever it is you're listening to. Suggestive, if someone's looking for a cool podcast, this show is brought to you by Steve Green, Robert Hardingham, and your friends the 2080 for joined them and helped support the show. We'd appreciate it. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Cradaline. That's the podcast network. Support the show. Receive a ton of excellent or yeah, receive advanced episodes. It's good times. And come back next time as Wilderlands rolls on. We reach climaxes and Missionary Man and Cal Have Justice and learn some lessons in with Mean Machine as things go from bad to worse in Armitage. That's a crime, God. Be a mean. And until then, I'm Conrad. There you lie. And we are Big Neck One. Drop it. Drop it.